Our scripture passage for today comes from Matthew chapter 16. And those of you who are able, if you will please stand for the reading of the word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In his book, The Great Spiritual Migration, Brian McLaren says that every generation faces a great challenge. And in each case, the people of that time must decide how they will respond. Today, I'm going to talk about two significant moments in the history of Christianity. The Reformation, which took place in the 1500s, and the earliest Christian church between the year 30 and the year 100. We have the people who rose to the occasion in these moments to thank for much of what we understand about our faith today. They were imperfect people that God used to share good news in times of despair and uncertainty. You may have noticed Martin Luther's name in our sermon series title, and you may also have noticed that our preaching schedule is a little different this month. And it just so happens that Melissa and I are preaching the first two sermons in this series. I don't want to put any undue pressure on you, but if you happen to bump into Doyle, and if the subject of Martin Luther comes up, it would make me really happy if you could tell Doyle at least one thing about Martin Luther that he doesn't already know. So today is the perfect day to use the sermon notes section in your bulletin to take notes and maybe have a conversation with Doyle about all that you learn. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in Germany. Out of the eight children in his middle-class family, 
Martin was selected as the son who would be educated and therefore wealthy and hopefully have a better life than his parents had. So Martin went off to school and studied law, and he specifically wanted to specialize in canon law, which is the law of the church. And you have to remember, this was a very different time. The Roman Empire was still ruling, and there were were local princes who governed the different areas. And the empire was a Christian empire. Luther came home from school for a visit in 1505. And he was caught up in a terrible thunderstorm. He took cover under a tree, and he was convinced that he was going to die in this storm. So as he's huddling under this tree, sure that it's the end of his life, he cries out to St. Anne and says, St. Anne, if you will save me, I will become a monk. And he survived. Something you may already know about Martin Luther is that he was a man of high moral conviction. And so when he was saved from the storm, he felt that he must leave his promising future in law and become a monk. His parents were not happy. The church in Luther's time was extremely corrupt. It was the most powerful political institution of the time, and people used the buying and selling of indulgences to gain power and position in the church, which would give them political power in the region. Priests who were supposed to be celibate were actually quite promiscuous. And they had many illegitimate children for whom they purchased indulgences and positions in the church. During this time, many clergy were not even trained in the traditions of the church or in theology. And so the infrastructure of the church was crumbling. As we would assume, the general public lost faith in the church. So in October of 1517... 500 years ago, when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door, he quickly gained much support, particularly from young people at the university where he was teaching. At the time, there was a process a person had to go through in order to receive absolution or forgiveness for their sins. They had to feel bad for what they had done. This is called contrition. They needed to confess their sins to a priest, and then they needed to satisfy the sin by doing good works or going on a pilgrimage or, at the time, buying indulgences. So indulgences had become a tremendously common practice in the church. Had these cultural conditions not existed when Luther posted his 95 Theses, there may have been no major changes in the church. But because people were so fed up with the way things were, Luther sparked tremendous debates and councils and significant reformation in the Catholic Church 
and eventually the formation of the Protestant tradition. In the same way, there were certain historical and cultural factors at play that allowed Christianity to emerge and survive in the years between Jesus' death and the time it became the religion of the state under Constantine, almost 300 years. During the time of the emergence of Christianity, there was great uncertainty and conflict. The average life expectancy was maybe half of what it is now. Life was very difficult. People also lived at the mercy of this violent empire, which occupied territories promising to bring justice and wealth and stability, but often the opposite occurred. People had no faith in the promise of the empire. And the Jewish people at this time continued to wait for a Messiah who would bring about their promised future. And yet they still lived as subjugated people who had no control over their land. There was increasing division among different Jewish sects and increasing disagreement about how this promised future would occur. The lack of faith in the political and religious institutions at this time resulted in the practice of mystery religions, which were not Judaism and were also not pagan Roman worship, but other types of idol worship, because people had lost interest in the religions that they once followed. Scholars cannot be sure when or where Matthew's Gospel, our text for today, was first published. But they do know it was probably sometime between the year 70 and the year 100. And wherever it was published, it was an area where the Christian church and the synagogue were in constant contact and conflict. And also in an area where there was enough Jewish influence to bring serious trouble to the communities of Christian believers. We remember that many Jewish people didn't agree with the teachings of Jesus and did not agree with the Christians. So Christians could count on being brought before the local Sanhedrin. They were flogged in the synagogue, and they often had to flee from town to town to escape persecution. So somehow, in the first 300 years of its existence, the church flourished under persecution, thanks to these first evangelists, which is often how we refer to those who pulled together the Gospels, evangelists, most of whose names we do not know. But what we do know today is the fervor and the determination with which they shared the story of Jesus. Each of these moments, the Reformation, the emergence of the early church, each of these moments in Christian history shared a message that was powerful enough 
to stick around for 500 or 2,000 years. Think about how unbelievable that is. This tiny little region along the Mediterranean Sea, a tiny little people group with an even tinier group of 12 disciples and one rabbi who sparked a movement that would grow into Christianity. So let's talk for a minute about the message of Luther's time, this message that came out of the Reformation. Many of us have probably heard references to Luther's 95 theses, the things he hammered on the the door at the university. And actually, this was a common way to announce an academic debate. So what Luther was doing was not that unusual, was the contents of the theses that was quite unusual and stoked these fires of discussion. So after he hung these theses on the door, started a debate in the community, in the region, got officials involved, he, he wrote a series of writings that also continued to stoke these fires of discussion. One of these was called the Babylonian Captivity of the Christian Church. This is very interesting. I want you to listen really closely to this. The Babylonian Captivity of the Christian Church. So in this writing, he claimed that the gospel had become captive to the institutional church. The medieval church had imprisoned the gospel in a complex system of priests and sacraments. And the church had become the master of the gospel, where it should be its servant. Very interesting. The church had become the master of the gospel, where it should be its servant. So Luther sparked a storm of discussion and conflict and councils, and there were others during this time who were doing the same thing in nearby regions, so Luther wasn't the only one. And this is actually not really what he set out to do. He did not set out to create division in the church, but to call the church on its practice of commodifying salvation. The gospel message of Luther's moment was, what if the church and all its rules and regulations is not what saves you? What if that is not what saves you? What if we are saved simply because God chooses to impart the gift of grace to us and not because of how good and perfect we are? Luther had a tremendous shift in his thinking. For much of his life, he understood God as wrathful and He had to do certain things, in his understanding, had to do certain things to prevent the wrath of God from coming upon him. But this is a major shift in his thinking. What if this is a gift from God that doesn't rely on me being perfect? It's easy for us to take for granted these ideas because we hear so much about them. 
But this was a tremendous shift for the church and so much of how we understand the Bible and salvation and our own role in faith. And all of that can be traced back to this significant moment in history. Again, in a tiny little place in the world. When we study scripture, it's important for us to step back and ask, what did these words mean to the people who first read them? What did they mean? What was it like for them to read these words? And we can't go back and interview the first Christians, but thankfully, today's message from Matthew 16 is pretty straightforward. Jesus starts a conversation with the disciples, so Who do people say the Son of Man is? They murmur a few names, John the Baptist, Elijah, Prophet Jeremiah. And then he asks, Jesus asks a question that he really wants to ask. (laughs) Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps in there and he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In the time of the early church, the word Messiah meant something different than it does to us. In Jewish thought, the Messiah was a human figure anointed by God to bring about Israel's promised future, most likely through some sort of military or political victory. Prior to the time of Jesus, The term Messiah was used for prophets and priests, but it was most often reserved for kings who were anointed with oil as a public sign of being chosen by God for the role of king. Around the time of Jesus, during the Roman occupation, these messianic expectations became intertwined with Jewish nationalist feelings. And so there was more fervor around a political and military Messiah who would liberate these people. Now, how the title Messiah came to be applied to Jesus is complicated, but what we do know is that the early church referred intentionally to Jesus as Messiah. And that's what's happening in today's text. The early church the evangelists are saying clearly, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of what has been hoped for. But we also know that the early Christians understood, and through our study of Jesus, we know that Jesus did not fit the mold of Messiah as defined by tradition. You remember in our passage today, Jesus instructed his followers not to call him Messiah. This is called the messianic secret, what Jesus often told the people. Jesus was not the political or military Messiah expected in nationalist sects of Judaism. And Jesus was not considered victorious because he subjected himself to suffering and death. So the early church intentionally refers to Jesus as Messiah 
knowing it is different than what was expected, and telling the people that God was up to something they hadn't anticipated. The other name that Peter gives for Jesus is Son of the Living God. Living as in opposition to the pagan gods and idols that were so popular at the time, these objects and ideas which didn't hold any living hope for the people. And living also contrasted with dying, alluding to the amazing good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and God's living and active presence at work in the world. And this is the earliest and most fundamental message of Christianity, that God was at work through Jesus, risen from the dead. The earliest evangelists dedicated themselves to going and saying and sharing, have you heard about Jesus of Nazareth? As I've studied in preparation for today, I think the gospel has come to me most clearly this week through these stories in an unexpected way. I have reflected on how the people of these moments were not perfect people. They weren't really even goody-two-shoes kind of people. Now, some people are going to disagree with me, including Doyle, probably. (laughs) But Martin Luther was a little crazy. Before he discovered this new way of understanding God, he had major, major issues with obsessing over perfectionism. And when he lived in a monastery, he wanted to be the most perfect monk he could be. His confessor hid from him because he confessed so often and he would do things over and over and over again because he didn't feel like he was doing it right. He was a manic kind of guy. After Luther sparked this debate, the prince in the region basically kidnapped him to protect him because his life was in danger. And it's well documented when he lived in this local castle that Luther could be heard arguing with the devil in his tower and that he would throw his pen and his inkwell in the middle of these arguments and supposedly you can go and you can still see the ink stain on the floor in the castle. Luther was nearly driven mad by his fear that he was not saved. He was convinced that he was not saved. And it was only through his revelation that salvation is a gift from God and that it's not something he could earn by doing good or believing the right things. It's only because of this revelation that he somehow found peace in his life. He was not a perfect person. And then there's the disciple Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. I think I like Peter because he reminds me so much of myself. Always kind of jumping the gun, if you will. Acting a little too quickly. Not thinking before I speak. 
The disciples get caught in a storm on the water. Jesus comes out to them on the sea. Peter jumps out of the boat ahead of the other disciples. But then his confidence melts and he begins to sink. Peter makes this confident declaration in our passage today in Matthew 16. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then, just a few verses later in chapter 16, when Jesus breaks the news to the disciples about the terrible suffering that he will undergo, Peter says, no, Jesus, that couldn't possibly be what you're called to do. And Jesus sternly rebukes him, get behind me, Satan. In the darkest hour of Jesus' life, Peter betrays him denying three times that he even knows who Jesus is. But Jesus blesses Peter. He calls him the rock on which he will build his church. After his resurrection, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Jesus loved even Peter and called Peter to do his work. The truth is, as Richard Rohr says, there are no perfect people, and there are no perfect institutions. Every one of us can survey our lives and provide ample evidence that we're not suited to build God's kingdom. We could each write a book on the shortcomings of the church. And yet Jesus says, To every one of us, even to the church, you're just who I'm looking for. Now, will you come and follow me? Earlier in this chapter, Jesus and the Pharisees have this conversation. And they ask Jesus for a sign that he is the Messiah or the Son of God. And Jesus says to them, you guys can't even read the signs of your own time. How can you receive a sign from God? Let us be Christians who are awake to the needs and the challenges of our time. What good is it for us to ignore the needs of our community and our world? What good is it if we put ourselves to sleep? Last night I was making green beans and Catherine was helping me. And I said, let me get the salt. We need to put a little salt on these. And she said, well, Mom, what's salt? I said, well, it's seasoning. And she said, well, what's seasoning? And I said, seasoning is what makes our food taste good. You know, Jesus could be somewhat ambiguous at times, but he was quite clear in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, you are the salt of the earth. You give the world its savory flavor. You have the power to heal and to create and to restore and to build God's dream in the world. So let us be people who through our words and our actions ask, have you heard about Jesus, the Messiah? He is the Son of the living God. Let's pray. 
Oh God, we thank you that you receive every one of us, every part of who we are. Oh Lord, we pray that we might be open to receive the gift of your grace. And God, we pray also that we might be able to pour out this grace into the world to engage what we see around us every day with love. Amen.